Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to be here. I hope you guys are excited to be here. Um, one thing we're going to be using in our time together is Matthew 13, 45. So if you have a Bible with you, it'd just be awesome if you bring that out now or your phone or it's also going to be here. So don't worry about that, especially if you're watching um, from home. But like I said, I hope you're all doing wonderful. I hope you are all excited to be here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Donnie Sanchez. I serve as the next-gen pastor here at Cornerstone. Uh, so basically, that looks like overseeing kind of the ministries from babies all the way to graduates, even into some young adult, and then our special needs uh, ministry. And man, oh man, I got to tell you, we have some really awesome leaders in those ministries doing some really awesome things. God is at work. But if you've been with us the past few Sundays, you know that we are in a series titled, This is How We Change the World. We're looking at kind of the seven core values uh, that we have as a church and how through these core values, we make an impact in our community and we participate with God in advancing his kingdom. So these are the hills that we're willing to die on. These core values are how we make our decisions. What are we gonna do as a church? Well, let's look at our core values. And so if you call Cornerstone home, this is who we are. If you call Cornerstone home, this is who you are. These are the hills that you die on. And so as uh, you heard during the pre, we are in week five of our series. So we've had four weeks so far. So what I wanna do is I wanna kind of go over them really fast. So the title's gonna show up. I'll read the title, you repeat it back to me, and then I'll read the description. Don't worry about repeating that back because boy, oh boy, that's a long one. So let's get started. Week one, we looked at the value, long live the king. Long live the king. You guys are awesome. Uh, so the description for that is Jesus is our king and everything we do flows out of that truth. It's not about us, it's about him. We are here to make Jesus famous and be coworkers in helping the Lord's prayer come to fruition. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Long live the king. Okay, that was week one. Week two, unity is our calling card. Guys, you're so good at this. Okay, the description for this is Browns fans and Steelers fans, dog people and cat people, Republicans and Democrats. There are divisions everywhere, but they have no place in our church. In Jesus, we have a God who is yes and amen, and we too will be known for what we are for, not for what we're against. Okay, week, that was week two. This is week three, second mile generosity. Guys, I love you. Um, okay, the description for this one is the church of Jesus Christ should be the most generous group of people on earth. We will follow the example of our king who held back nothing to rescue us. Our time, talent, and treasure are cheerfully given to expand the kingdom of God and to impact our communities. And then finally, last week, which was super awesome, uh, was workers, not watchers. Awesome. Our culture is obsessed with consuming, consuming products, consuming content, even consuming church. But church is not meant to be consumed. It is meant for contribution. Fulfilling God's uh, purpose only comes from working on the field, not watching on the sidelines. Now, 
Cornerstone. So far, this is what we've gone over, and this is who you are. This is who we are. So if you've missed any of these Sundays, if you've missed any of these messages, I want to challenge you, go back, listen to them, watch them, even if you've already seen them. And you can find that on our website, cornerstonechurch.family, on our YouTube, on our podcast, wherever podcasts are found, whatever platform you use. But the thing is, is this is who we are. So it's important that you know who you are. Um, and so please, please, please go back and watch the, uh, the past messages after service. Go listen to them. Maybe on your commute to work, you can listen to them in the car. But like we said, we are in week five. And so this week, our value is pearls, sheep, and coins. We're not going to yet... Uh, reveal that description because I thought I'd tell you a story to kind of put us in the frame of mind to help us understand what we mean when we say pearls, sheep, and coins. Now, many of you already know this, but if you don't already know, uh, my mother is actually an immigrant from Colombia. Not Columbia, South Carolina, but Columbia, South America. And so she is from there. And actually, my sister is from there too. Um, they're both immigrants from Colombia, and I happen to be the sibling that was born in the United States. Um, so what that means is all of my family on that side is there. My grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, the whole nine yards, all down there except for my sister and my mom. They both live in Ohio. And so because of this, um, Jordan, my wife, who was on the pre, if you didn't already know, uh, Jordan and I like to go back to Columbia as much as possible to visit family. And thankfully, we were able to visit Columbia over Christmas. So we were there from December 16th all the way to December 30th. And we were able to spend time with family. It was absolutely amazing. It was awesome. Uh, we weren't able to spend time with all the family um, just because of COVID and whatnot, but a good number of people were able to be there. My mom was able to come as well. Now, while we were there, I realized the importance of family and Colombian culture. Now, I grew up with this. Like, I, I'm, th this culture is not shocking to me. Like, I eat the food. I know the music. I know all these different things about the culture. And yet, every time we go, I'm reminded of the importance of family in Colombia. Now, this is in contrast of where we live in the United States, where kind of our family structures have somewhat broken down to now where many, for many people, uh, family are the people who live in your home. Some people be like, well, that's my family. That's it. Or for some people, family is just good friends that we know. Or maybe you would even define your family as being here. And can I just say, we are your family, but... The general family structure in the United States has somewhat broken down, and those are due to varying circumstances and different things, one being industrialization, um, and then two, just how transient we are as a people. We just go here, go there, go there. Now, in Colombia, it's totally different, totally different. I was talking with my mom to verify what I was saying because I, you know, like I said, I know the culture, but I just wanted to be sure. Like, hey, mom, is this really how it is or am I tripping a little bit? And she said this, she said, listen, in Colombia, you have family or you have family. There's really no in between. You don't really get to choose. And so say you lose your family, they all pass away or something happens, you know, a tragedy. You'll often be brought in by another family. So that is your support system. Your family is your support system. And I'm not just talking about nuclear family. I'm talking about like aunts, cousins, uncles, grandparents, the whole, the whole thing. And so in Colombia, family is extremely important. And it, additionally, one other thing that's 
different about both cultures, a little bit of contrasting, is the meal structure. So in the United States, um, breakfast is super small if you eat breakfast at all. Like I can, me and Jordan tend to forget about breakfast sometimes. So in the United States, breakfast is super small if you eat it and if it's not just coffee. Uh, and then lunch, we usually eat on the go as well or we eat alone. It's, it's not gonna be big either. You're not going all out for lunch um, because when we get to dinner, that's like the big thing. That's when everybody, if you're gonna eat together, that's when you eat together. If you're gonna host somebody, you're gonna have them over for dinner. That's kind of the meal that is the most important out of the three. In Colombia, Breakfast is still small, but like everybody eats breakfast and you like sit down to eat breakfast. You're not like driving and like eating a McDonald's breakfast burrito kind of thing, but you sit down, you eat breakfast and then dinner you is really like a glorified snack. It's really just like, yeah, maybe an empanada or fruit or some cheese and hot chocolate. It's not really big and it's often later in the evening at like 8 p.m. But lunch... Lunch is the big deal. Lunch is where you spread the table, where everybody gathers around. Um, man, for lunch, my favorite meal is bandeja paisa or sancocho. Oh my gosh, if you don't know what they are, look them up. Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. But that's where you spread the table and you eat together as a family. And that time is sacred. When, like I said, I was talking to my mom about the value of family in Colombia. And she was telling me this story. When she was in college, she was about 21 or so, either 21 to 25. Um, she was in physical therapy school. And uh, she had a friend, a family friend, and his nickname is Toto. His real name is Jose. And uh, they would meet together on Saturday mornings and go for runs because they lived in the same neighborhood. Then they would go for a run on a Saturday morning, come back to my grandparents' apartment, chill out, drink coffee, whatever, chill. Then around like 1.30, because lunch is at 2 in Colombia, around there. Right around lunchtime, my grandparents would kick Toto out. And he's a family friend, they love him, but they would kick him out because the time of lunch is sacred and he would be able to come back at 4 p.m. after you have you know, your lunch and then your little siesta time, then he could come back. But lunch was sacred and you don't miss lunch. If possible, barring an emergency, you do not miss lunch. People come home from work, people come home from school and you do not miss lunch at all. And so when we were in Colombia, we ate lunch every single day. Maybe one of us had to miss breakfast, one of us had to miss dinner, but you were never allowed to miss lunch. So in Colombia, when it comes to lunch, you lay down your preference to be with your family. It doesn't matter if you want to be somewhere else. It doesn't matter if you want to hang out with friends. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're like, shoot, I have a report to get in for work. I, I got to go, guys. Like, I have a big meeting coming up. I got to prepare for it. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a school project. You eat lunch, no devices, no nothing. You're there with family. And so you slow down for the sake of family and you lay down your personal preference for the sake of family. And Jordan and I have really actually tried to implement this um, in our break room. We both work at Cornerstone. Uh, we try to eat lunch together every single day. No devices, no anything. And it's a way to kind of uh, split up our day, but it's also a sacred time. And so what does that have to do with our core value? Well, here is the value description, finally. We all have preferences and there's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when preferences become our primary instead of people. Just look at Jesus. He sacrificed his privilege and preference to pursue us. We as a church will do the same as we pursue people far from God. Cornerstone, this is who we are. This is who you are. This is how we participate as people of the kingdom of God. 
And so today we'll be taking a three-step journey looking at how do we live into this value and it will help us better understand this core value. Now, I will say we're not able to go deep into each portion. I wanna invite you to do that on your own time, but I do wanna help us work through what it looks like to live into the core value of the pearls, the sheep, and the coins. But before we do that, will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. Lord, we thank you that we're able to gather, that we're able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And so, Lord, we, by your spirit, will you help us? Will you be with us? Will you guide us? May what you want to be said, be said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, step one in our journey is pearls. And like I said, the passage we are gonna be looking at is Matthew 13, 45 and 46. It says this, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Pretty short parable. But there are a couple things to note here. First, scripture never takes place in a vacuum, never. It is written at a specific time. For instance, gospel according to Matthew, first century AD, to a specific group of people. Matthew was written to Jewish Christians, Jews who um, said yes to Jesus. They saw Jesus as the Messiah. And then finally, for a specific purpose, Matthew was written to show Jewish Christians that he was in fact the Jewish Messiah. And so because scripture um, has a context and a purpose in everything, we must read it in context. As Bible readers, we must try to figure out what is scripture saying, not what do we want scripture to say. And so because of this, I wanna look at that word again in verse 45. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Why is he saying again? Well, to figure that out, we have to look one verse before that. In verse 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, a treasure, uh, is like treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. So these two parables actually go together. They're saying the same thing. They're speaking about the same thing, and they're speaking about the kingdom of God. That being said, the second thing to note, what is he saying when he means kingdom of heaven? Is he talking about where do we go when we die? What's happening? Where, like, what is that? Is that just another term for heaven? Well, it's not. Actually, it's synonymous with the term kingdom of God. In Matthew, you'll notice it says kingdom of heaven. And in other gospels, you'll notice it says kingdom of God. So they're the same thing. They're not different. They're speaking of the same thing, just a different way to say it. So when I say kingdom of God today, think about that. So, um, so the second thing to note is that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. So now speaking of uh, kingdom of God, what is a running definition that we can go through? Maybe you've never really heard that term. What is it? Well, a running definition for the kingdom of God is the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And that quote is actually by Jeremy Treat, who's a pastor out on the West Coast. Uh, he wrote an article called The Kingdom of God in Eight Words on thegospelcoalition.com. If you wanna figure out a really simple way to understand the kingdom of God, I would read that article. It's really amazing. So that being said, we've noted those two things. What are these verses saying? 
Well, this is Jesus' third discourse in the book of Matthew, and there's some debate about the interpretation. Some would say that this is about Christ purchasing his people by his blood, bringing salvation to all people. But as we talked about the context, a clear understanding of what the kingdom of God is, and by reading the passage in context in chapter 13, which is really intriguing to read and look at the structure, we can clearly see that these two parables are about our response to the kingdom of God and its greatness thereof. It's about the greatness of God's kingdom and that when we find it, everything else actually pales in comparison. And so that being said, our first step, our first step in the journey is defined by repentance. So step one in our process of living into this core value of valuing people over preference, step one is repent. And one way repentance has been defined is literally a change of mind. Not about individual plans, intentions, or beliefs, but rather a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. And so repentance is turning from our sinful ways, that old way of living, and then turning to God. It is leaving that old way behind and saying yes to Jesus. And notice in the passage, the man and the merchant actually could not obtain the treasure of the kingdom and hold on to the wealth that they had. They needed to make a decision. And so in the language of our parables, there are no rich people who can keep their possessions and enter the kingdom of God. Meaning to enter the kingdom of God, we need to leave behind that old way of living. And do you know what that old way of living includes? It includes our preferences. We need to lay down what we want, what I want. What I want is not of most importance. And so we need to lay down our, our preference. Second, we need to lay down our worldly power that comes by our race, ethnicity, and our gender. We need to lay down worldly power because in the kingdom, worldly power is no power at all. And then finally, we need to lay down our selfish nature. Again, it's getting what I want. Why do we need to do that? Well, in the kingdom of God, we take on the way of our king, and that king is Jesus. You know, in, in Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul explains that we were once dead in our sin. We were once dead in the old way of living. In Romans 5, when he talks about that, he's actually uh, calling us an enemy of God when we are in that old way of living. But then he continues in Ephesians 2 and says that we've actually been made alive with Christ and brought into the household of God by God's great mercy and grace. And so today, how many people in here are parents? Or at home, if you're, if you're uh, watching online, throw it in the chat. Okay, parents. Okay, how many of people in here were once kids? That should be everybody, right? Now, uh, parents. In your household, whether your kids are currently living in your house or once did, uh, when your kids are living in your house, are, aren't they expected to live by your rules? To live by what your family has defined as good and bad, right and wrong? There's a way to live in your house. There's things you do and things that you don't do. And so when we as people enter the family of God, we no longer decide what is right and wrong. We're a part of a new household. We live in a different way. Our king now defines that, or our heavenly father now defines that. We no longer live according to our way. We live according to Christ's way. 
And that's self-giving love, self-sacrificial love. And so to walk in the core value we're speaking of, we first need to repent. And I'm sure there are some here today in person or online that have believed before that we can actually have both. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can be rich and enter the kingdom of God. But it's just not true. At some point, we need to lay down all that we have to gain the riches of the kingdom. And that's the focus when it comes to our first step. Not on what is lost by entering the kingdom, but actually by what is gained in Christ. And so again, step one is marked by repentance. Now step two, the sheep. The second and third step actually could be one part, but I believe they have two components and for the sake of our time, it would be actually more beneficial to split them into two parts. So the second part is sheep. And for that, we're gonna be looking at Matthew 18, 12 through 14. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one who wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that, should, that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Remember, scripture doesn't happen in a vacuum. And before this passage, Jesus is using this imagery of little children to talk about humble believers, that we must become humble and lowly like children to enter the kingdom of God. That is why he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That was just before the passage. Additionally, let's look at the passage after verse 14. It's verses 15 through 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you are on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So this, this passage is speaking about a wrong being done in a Christian community and what we're supposed to do about it. It talks about church discipline. But the focus of the passage is not on the division aspect. It's actually focused on the process of reconciliation. And so step two in our journey together today is reconciliation. It's a theme that flows through our passage about the sheep. Uh, God going to leave the 99 who are already there to bring back the one. It's a process of reconciliation. And that's because reconciliation is near and dear to the heart of God. It is why it says in verse 14, in the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And so do you remember step one, repent? When we enter the kingdom of God, we take on the way of our king. And so therefore, we rejoice at the reconciliation of a lost brother or sister to God or to someone else. And that's because God rejoices when that happens. So we rejoice. And this is really a common sense reality, and yet we miss it all the time. Notice in the beginning of our um, little passage there in verse 12, Jesus says, what do you think? 
This is a call to common sense, and yet we miss it all the time. Even the people he was speaking to missed this call to common sense. And so what do you think? Does God desire violence, rage, and throwing others into contempt with our minds? Or does he desire reconciliation through love, grace, truth, and understanding? One's easy. One leads to the, uh, one is the way to the kingdom of God. One leads to death and destruction. One leads to life. And for so many of us, because we've refused to turn from our old way of living, we've actually hurt those we love in the process. Maybe this is your story. Because others have refused to turn from their old way of living, we have been hurt in the process. Maybe that is your story. But the result of these scenarios is division. But it doesn't have to be that way. And as a church, we refuse that it stays that way. God desires reconciliation, and so do we. Reconciliation with God, so salvation, welcoming others to know Jesus, and then reconciliation with our perceived enemies, even within the church. Forget about being right. It's not a kingdom rule. But do you know what it is? Self-giving love. We value people over preference. We value people over the need to be right. Not saying we don't stand for truth, but I don't need to get my way. I don't need to be vindicated in the public square and let everybody know that I was right. So to live in this core value, we must seek reconciliation for it is what God desires, that we reconcile with him and reconcile with each other. And so far, we have two out of the three steps in our process. Step one, repent. We must turn from our old way of living to say yes to the kingdom and yes to Jesus in his way. We cannot keep our preference, pride, worldly power, and prestige while participating in the kingdom of God. And then we had step two. God desires that we reconcile with him and that we reconcile with each other. Because God desires it, we desire it as well. We forsake that need to be right and the need to get what we want for the sake of reconciling with a brother or sister in Christ or leading someone to reconcile themselves with God. We will the good of others over ourselves. So now we're into step three, which is coins. And for that, we are looking at Luke 15, eight through 10. Flipping through here. In case you have a Bible, that's why I did this, to give you some time, because my pet peeve is when a pastor goes, Luke 15, eight and 10, and then just goes, and I'm just like, (laughs) so. But Luke 15, eight through 10, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, what marks this step in our process, step three, is rejoicing. So step three in our process is rejoice. As is important in our time today, Let's look at the context. Jesus says in the beginning of what we just read, or suppose. And that indicates that he is continuing a point he was already making before. And if you actually look at the passage before, it's the parable of the lost sheep. And so this is Luke's account of what we just looked at in Matthew. It's it's the parallel passage right there. And if you look at the passage after what we just read, you'll notice it is the parable of the lost son, or also known as the prodigal son. Now, Let's look at this woman who lost this coin. The coin that they're speaking about in this passage is called a drachma. And a drachma would be 
about worth a day's wage. So for Ohio, the average daily wage pre-tax um, would be somewhere between $140 to $200. Whew, can you imagine losing that much? Just like, oh crap, I lost $200. That's a big deal, especially if things are tight at the moment. I know I would be searching all over the place. I'd be flipping couches, opening bags, going closets everywhere, the whole nine yards trying to find this $200. Because that might be important when it comes time to pay rent, utilities, or something else, maybe even groceries. And so after she carefully searches all over the house, she finds it and rejoices. When you would find that $200, you wouldn't just be relieved and go, whew, that was good. Glad I found $200. And you'd be excited. You would rejoice a little bit. And so she invites people over to rejoice with her. She, she doesn't rejoice alone. And so this parable is clear. There's rejoicing in heaven in this way over every person who was lost but is now found in Christ. Every single one of them are valuable. Such a moment is worth being celebrated. In verse 10, it says, in the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so if we are people of the kingdom and we are part of the same kingdom, if this value is who we are, if it's who you are, we should rejoice in the same manner. Now, like I said before, Immediately following this passage is the passage of the prodigal son, which I also think speaks, uh, think that it speaks into this. Remember, scripture doesn't happen in a vacuum, so something is going on here. Now, I wish I could read, read the whole passage, but we totally don't have time for that today. Um, but to sum it up, in the prodigal son story, maybe you've heard it before, maybe not, there are two sons. There's a younger and an older son, and the younger son takes his inheritance early and then leaves. He says, I don't like the way my dad runs his house. I'd rather be on my own. I think I could do a better job. I'm out. Takes his money, leaves. He wastes all the money on worthless thing, what scripture calls wild living. And then as he did that, he goes bankrupt. A famine comes and he's like, crap, I got to figure out how I'm going to live. And so he hires himself out as a servant, a lowly servant feeding pigs. And he realized that they were eating better than he was. And he realized, he thought about all the servants at his father's house and what it was like being there. And so he came to his senses, decides to return to his father's house, but as a servant, not a son. The father, when he sees him, rejoices at his return and receives him as a son, not a servant, and actually throws a giant party for him. But his older brother was fuming. And that's this short little passage I wanna pick up here. It's 28 through 32. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order, yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was lost and is found. Many of us would identify with the story of the prodigal son that we thought we knew better, so we left, and now we come back to God, realizing that in Him is true life. But just as often as we can find ourselves in the shoes of the prodigal son, 
we are just as often the older brother. Instead of rejoicing at someone who's been reconciled to God or reconciled with a brother or sister in Christ, we actually turn our nose up them, up at them and we say, what's so special about them? I've, I'm better than them. I've been here longer. I've done this, this, and that for this church and I've never gotten that kind of attention. Well, this kind of prideful thinking kills church communities. It actually also kills the spiritual life of that prideful person and stunts the growth of that newfound believer in Christ. The prideful thinking is not who we are. The prideful thinking is not who you are if you call Cornerstone home. We rejoice with all of heaven because the spirit is at work. And so our focus isn't on us. We laid that down when we said yes to Jesus and yes to his kingdom. And so now our focus is on Christ and on those around us. So if our hearts are fully given to God, then our hearts will be full of love. And if they are full of love, our rejoicing will reflect the rejoicing that is taking place in heaven over one sinner who has been found. Now, just as there's this godly journey that we're going on to live in this core value, the journey of repentance, reconciliation, and rejoicing, there's also this journey that is marked by the flesh and the world. That is the journey of power, division, and gossip. Power. Instead of repenting in humility, laying down our preference, prestige, privilege, and pride, we seek to use our worldly power to get what we want. Because we think, man, if I wield my worldly power, then the world would be good. We, we place ourselves in the spot of God. And that looks like selfishly valuing ourselves and our ideas over people. Division, instead of seeking reconciliation in, in love, we stay stuck in our resentment and anger. Instead of walking in love with our neighbor, we divide. We make distinctions that are unnecessary. We otherize people because we value our pride and our feelings and our need to be right over people. Finally, gossip. Instead of rejoicing at the sal uh, salvation and success of others, we gossip about their weakness. We do this because we ourselves feel weak. We feel that we must preserve our image, so we try to bring someone lower than we are. When we do this, we value ourselves and our perceived prestige over another person. In reality, we do this at the expense of the community that we say we love. So the godly journey of the pearl, the sheep, and the coins is a journey of repenting, reconciling, and ultimately rejoicing. And if you're like me, I've struggled with that worldly process before. And so this godly journey isn't a one-time thing. We are continually repenting, continually reconciling, and continually rejoicing. And I think we can safely say that Cornerstone has been on this continual journey, wouldn't you? I mean, I haven't been a part of Cornerstone as long as, long as many of you here, um, but I can say safely looking at the history and looking at how long I've been here, that Cornerstone's been on this journey, doing its very best to surrender itself to the will of God, the way of Jesus. So what I wanna do for a moment is imagine that we continue to do this. We continue to repent, we continue to reconcile, and we continue to rejoice both individually and as a community. We now have a property. We now have a, a building. There's opportunities everywhere, and there are greater opportunities than ever. And so what would our church look like? 
What would our community look like? And not in the sense of what you would want to happen, but what kind of people would we be? What would we be like? What would people sense when they come in the doors? So what I wanna do for a second is something that might be a tad bit uncomfortable, but I want us to close our eyes for a second. Even if you're at home, unless you're driving, close your eyes. (laughs) Imagine what it would look like to value people over preference. Not getting what we want, but valuing people. Now think about the different ministries in our church, ministries that maybe you're a part of or not a part of. Maybe kids, special needs, youth, the multitude of C groups that we have, divorce care, our city lights team, our memorial team. There's so many more. Think about what that would be like. Not what you want to happen, but the kind of people we would be if we continue this process. That vision that we all have of what we will be like when we continue to go on this journey, it won't be accomplished by sitting idly by. And you can open your eyes now, but it won't be accomplished by sitting idly by. We must be continually repenting, continually reconciling, and continually rejoicing as a people. It's not for the chosen few, but it's for all who follow Christ. Cornerstone, this is who you are. We all have preferences, and there's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when our preferences become our primary instead of people. Just look at Jesus. He sacrificed his privilege and preference to pursue us. We, as a church, will do the same as we pursue people far from God. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of the ways that we've wielded our worldly pride and preference as a way to get what we want. So Lord, we repent, knowing that you are a forgiving God, that you are full of mercy, grace, and love. Will you help us so that now we may go and reconcile with those we've hurt in the process, and then we may rejoice at a newfound relationship. So Lord, we thank you for the ability to reflect and hear what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.